Hello, dreamers, and welcome to this newest episode of California Dreaming. This is the second part of our series, The Tale of a Girl Boss and the Silicon Valley of Lies. Thank you, as always, for listening to and enjoying this podcast. You know that it is a completely independent, ad-free, one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can support this show. You can leave a rating and a review, preferably a five-star one, on Apple Podcasts, and that helps give us more visibility. It pushes us up the charts and helps new listeners find us. You can recommend us in the True Crime fan groups on Facebook. I've seen you out there. I get notifications if you mention me or the show, and I always appreciate that. You can follow us on Twitter, comment, like, retweet, all the good stuff. Same on Instagram. Just search for the show and it should be pretty easy to find. And if you just can't get enough of California Dreaming, you can subscribe to our Patreon where you can not only access dozens of full-length exclusive bonuses for as little as $1 a month, but you will also be helping to keep the lights on over here and the treat jar full. So this week, I'd like to thank Layla C., Savalos, Summer H, Chrissy P, Stevie T, Mac, Lydia, Mindy E, Elizabeth L, Jane G, Bridget C, Tiffany C, Beth C, Jessica H, and Jennifer R for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, going annual, or donating through PayPal. And speaking of, if Patreon isn't your thing, and you'd like to throw a couple of bucks our way, you can do so through PayPal using the email CaliforniaPod at gmail.com. Sources for this episode include the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, as well as articles online, and all of it will be credited as needed in the show, as well as in the show notes, where you can find links to everything. And I would appreciate it if at the end of the episode that you would stay tuned and listen to a promo from the Reverie True Crime Podcast. The host page is amazing, and it's a show that I think that you will enjoy. So stay tuned for that. All right, let's get back to this multi-part series of California Dreaming, the tale of a girl boss and the Silicon Valley of Lies. In part one of the series, we were introduced to the founder and former CEO of biotech startup Theranos, which had been headquartered in Palo Alto, California. Elizabeth Holmes founded the company in 2003 at the age of 19, and over the course of the next several years, she was a rising star in the world of biotechnology, going on to eventually raise more than $700 million from private investors and venture capitalists and herself becoming the youngest self-made female billionaire at the time. We made our way through the first four years since Theranos' inception and how the company slowly and somewhat unimpressively began its ascension to the top of the world of biological engineering. Every step of the way, Theranos encountered roadblocks and setbacks that Elizabeth Holmes through a series of strategic maneuvers and a culture of secrecy, 
and intimidation was able to sidestep everything as she continued to forge ahead, always refusing to ever accept no as an answer. We saw people enthusiastically coming on board, some of them resigning from significant and coveted positions at solidly established companies such as Apple. And it didn't take long for Theranos employees and executives to begin seeing the cracks that Elizabeth attempted to so masterfully hide from everyone. And then we witnessed the very first member of Theranos' board of directors take his fall, Avi Tavanian. But it would be another seven to eight years before the house of cards that was Theranos really began to crumble, as Elizabeth Holmes spent those years doing everything that she could to keep her dream alive, even if it was never alive to begin with. So we will pick up the story from there. Okay, so you guys remember back in the mid-1970s when the Jeffersons were moving on up to the east side? Well, in 2008, Theranos made the opposite move to the west side, the west side of Palo Alto, that is. Remember in part one, we talked about Elizabeth's car window being shot out one morning when she was on her way to work? Yeah, that was East Palo Alto. It lies between San Francisco Bay to the east and the 101 freeway to the west. Once you get to the other side of the 101, then you've really made it. That's where the actual Palo Alto is. Menlo Park, Stanford, all the good stuff. At the time, Theranos, Theranos, Theranos moved out of East Palo Alto in 2008. It was only 16 years earlier that East Palo Alto had the highest murders per capita, making it 1992's murder capital in the United States. According to Carrie Roo's book, Bad Blood, much of what goes on in the Silicon Valley is based on appearances. For the three years that Theranos had been in its previous location on that side of the freeway, its next-door neighbor was a machine shop and across the street was a roofing business, so it wasn't all that glamorous. When they moved to the other side of the freeway, Theranos' new neighbor was Stanford University, and it was up the street from Hewlett-Packard. Don Lucas couldn't be happier with the move, as he made no secret of the fact that he couldn't stand its East Palo Alto location. Don Lucas, remember, is an investor and on the board. It looked as though things were really moving in the right direction for the company. But it really doesn't matter how pretty your building looks on the outside if the environment on the inside is a toxic one. We've already gotten a glimpse of the levels of paranoia and suspicion permeating the company, and it seems to have all started with Elizabeth. For years, she would attribute it all to protecting trade secrets, and we'll come to find that there were plenty of secrets being kept within the walls of their nose. Moving on up to the west side would bring about another staffing shakeup at Theranos, and it would involve one of Elizabeth's closest and most trusted executives, the head of information technology, Matthew Bissell. He had been hired in 2005 and put in charge of all things IT-related, 
including ensuring everything is safeguarded. Matthew was also going to be the one mostly in charge of the move to the new building, which was planned for February 1st, 2008. But late in the afternoon the day before, Elizabeth and her attorney called him for an unexpected meeting, but she wasn't actually there at the meeting. She was actually out of the country demonstrating the Edison for Swiss pharmaceutical company Novartis. Let me put the move to the west side on the back burner for a moment and tell you about the Novartis fail from the year before, and then I'll circle back to the move to the new building. Okay, so this demonstration in Switzerland was apparently a follow-up demonstration from 14 months earlier that unbeknownst to most everybody outside Elizabeth's closest confidants within Theranos was a massive failure. Actually, in Kerry Roo's book, he called it a faked demonstration. The reason is because, as far as anyone knew, based on what Elizabeth was saying, the demonstration for Novataris was a great success. But those who traveled with Elizabeth to Switzerland weren't feeling so enthusiastic about it. And the one who took notice was then Chief Financial Officer Henry Mosley. Remember, this is back in 2006. Again, these are early signs of what was to come. Theranos' blood testing machine was being demonstrated to Novataris. It was not working reliably at all. So in an effort to cover it all up, Theranos' employees made a record of the results that they were willing to show for their demonstration and potential investors. Henry Mosley began questioning this, wanting to know if that was actually what they were doing at the demo in Switzerland. Were they really covering up faulty results? But nobody was really willing to speak up and confirm that this was what was going on, which made him even more suspicious. Ultimately, leading him to believe that there was some fudging of the test results and data. The truth was, one of the two machines that they brought to Switzerland for the demonstration was completely on the fritz. Elizabeth's team had made the trip with her and worked all night attempting to fix its bugs, but ultimately they were unable to get the thing to work. So the next day they ran the machines as if nothing was wrong, and had falsified results that were sent over from California. The person who would be the one to send back those fake results from California to Switzerland was a guy described as Elizabeth's yes-man and former IBM executive Tim Kemp. But everybody, at one time or another, who worked for Theranos were Elizabeth's yes-people. Everybody had to say yes. If they ever said no or we can't or it won't, she didn't listen. She just kept plowing past it, ignoring everything. You had to be her yes people. And it would keep happening until your conscience took over and you just couldn't do it anymore. At the time, Elizabeth was only 22 years old and this was going to be a momentous event for Theranos. This demonstration in Switzerland that was going to be their first actual in-person demo for a huge pharmaceutical corporation. And from speaking with Elizabeth the morning of the demo, Tim Kemp sent emails to his team letting him know that the whole thing was a success and that Novataris was looking to ink a deal with Theranos. 
The word spread quickly around the offices back in California, including to CFO Henry Mosley, who had only been with Theranos for eight months at the time of the first Swiss demonstration. Having started his career in the Silicon Valley in the late 70s with computer microchip maker Intel, he was completely dazzled by Theranos's all-star board of directors when he came in in March of 2006, which isn't something one often sees in a company as new as Theranos. While many of Theranos's employees and executives came from computer hardware and software companies, Henry Mosley knew that the market Theranos was after, the biotechnology market, is evergreen. There were billions and billions of dollars to be made, and so he wanted in. Okay, I'm going to pause the story right now because my voice is starting to go out. So I'm going to try to take some medicine and drink some tea and see if that helps. So I'll be back in a little bit. The first inkling of trouble came along for Mosley when Elizabeth requested a portfolio with some business projections that she could discuss with their investors. So Mosley did as Elizabeth asked and put together some numbers. But she was not happy with his first set of productions and asked him to inflate the numbers. While he wasn't too keen on what she was asking him to do, he pushed aside those initial feelings and gave her a second version of the financials with bigger prospects. But it kind of sounds like he convinced himself that it was possible for them to reach those goals if everything went along without a hitch. And I guess... It's not uncommon for startups to exaggerate their numbers. New companies often have low numbers that don't seem to be going anywhere, and then all of a sudden the company will just take off. So Elizabeth wouldn't have been the first, and she certainly won't be the last. All of the investors and the venture capitalists are just going to have to hang in there and wait. But one of the things that made Mosley the most uneasy was the fact that he really actually had no idea how the company's blood testing system actually worked. Whenever he went around asking questions of the employees at the company, he was always told to go talk to Elizabeth and Sean Ackroy, employee number one. So what is the Theranos testing system in a nutshell anyway? By 2006 going into 2007, the idea was that the patient would have their finger pricked and that blood would be put into a cartridge that was roughly the size of a credit card. Then that cartridge would be inserted into a machine at the time about the size of like a toaster oven. Later on, it would grow to be about the size of possibly like an office inkjet printer. The toaster part of the contraption was called the reader, and it was supposed to have received data from the cartridge and that information would be sent over a wireless server where the data would be tested and whatever the results that were gleaned would be sent back to the reader. Mosley had no idea about the chemistry and the technology behind it all, but it really wasn't his job to know And I think Elizabeth kind of preferred things that way. He was the CFO, and as long as he was being told things were running smoothly and everything was working, he was good with that. 
he was never really told about any bumps in the road along the way. And Elizabeth's mood never betrayed her. She was always really cheery and buoyant, but lots, if not all, entrepreneurs are like that. There's just no room for cynicism. And again, Elizabeth is not one to ever be told no. But here's the thing. Elizabeth's outward disposition may never betray what's actually going on with Theranos, particularly if something doesn't go as smoothly as they had hoped for. But when everyone got back from Switzerland, Mosley couldn't help but notice that the only one who was all happy-go-skippy around the office was Elizabeth. Everyone else looked like their favorite pet just died. So he went to go talk to Shawnak. And, you know, Shawnak Roy has a Ph.D., so he's probably not going to be dancing around the office like this is some sort of hoot nanny if something is seriously wrong, like, oh, say, a college dropout might be doing. But when Mosley talked to Shawnak, he said he didn't know what was going on with everybody. But, you know, when you know somebody really well and you just know that they're not being totally upfront with you, That was the vibe that Mosley was getting in talking to Shawnak. Eventually, with a little bit more prodding, Shawnak finally admitted that the first incarnation of the blood testing system, the Theranos 1.0, didn't actually work accurately or with any measure of reliability. In his words, it was a crapshoot. Sometimes it did work, sometimes it didn't, you just never know what you were going to get. Henry Mosley was stunned by this revelation. He had thought all along that their blood testing system and technology was reliable. Every time investors came around, it was giving out good results, wasn't it? Well, it was time for Shanak to reveal the truth behind it all. It was actually an illusion. According to an article in thefinancialtimes.com, Mosley was told that the little screen on the reader would show the blood as it moved from the cartridge into the various wells inside and that was actually happening in real time. But whether or not you got accurate results or any results at all, that was left up to chance. So if by chance it did work, then cool we have a result. But if it didn't work, then a result would be recorded from a previous test when the machine actually did work, and that would be what appeared on the little screen when the demonstration was completed. But, you know, there are times when it's not unheard of for things to be fudged a little here and a little there for the sake of impressing investors. But this was a level of deception that Mosley felt crossed an ethical line that simply should not be crossed, especially when we're talking about patient health. While Mosley never actually found out the truth as to what happened at the first demonstration, he was certain that that was the kind of deception that was going on, hence all the long faces, except for Elizabeth, of course, when they returned from Switzerland. This is when yes-man Tim Kemp had sent falsified results to the readers over their wireless server all the way from California 
so that the malfunctioning machines would reflect having accurate results. After Mosley found out about what went on in Switzerland, he had a meeting with Elizabeth during which there were some investors present to discuss it. While Elizabeth acquiesced to the fact that there were some problems, she wasn't phased by any of it, not in the least. But because Mosley happened to bring this all up during an investor meeting, Elizabeth's next move was to fire Henry Mosley. But his questioning the reliability of the testing system isn't the official reason why the chief financial officer was terminated. But I will circle back to that in a moment. I want to get back to the move to the west side of the 101 freeway, bringing Theranos closer to Stanford and Menlo Park. I mentioned a few minutes ago that the guy basically in charge of this whole move was information technology head Matthew Bissell. He had been called in on their very last afternoon in their old location, which was January 31st, 2008, for a meeting with Elizabeth, who was calling in from Switzerland for her second live demo with them. The meeting also included attorney Michael Esquivel and board member Gary Frenzel, who was actually an architect. Elizabeth had just been told by the landlord of the old building that if they weren't out by midnight that night, they were going to have to pay rent for the entire month of February. Sounds like some bad planning on somebody's part, but Elizabeth told Matthew that she needed them to get cleared out immediately. And this call was taking place around four that afternoon. So she wanted Matthew to coordinate the entire move of their entire company in under eight hours. And Matthew was like, uh, yeah, okay, Elizabeth in Wonderland, that's not happening. And she was just like, call the movers and tell them to get over there. They weren't scheduled to be there until the next morning. And Matthew sighed and he was like, okay, I'll try. And when he called, the movers laughed in his face. I doubt Matthew relayed the laugh in face to Elizabeth, but when he told her it was impossible, it was as if she wasn't even listening. Remember, can't be told no. She demanded that Matthew hire a different moving company. But apparently, this is easier said than done. According to Carrie Rue's book, the company that Theranos hired was to do what's called a corporate move, and they were unionized. The company that Matthew tried to hire at the very last minute to do the move wasn't. And apparently, these unionized moving companies are all run by the mob. And if they were to hire a non-union company instead, there was a chance for some sort of retaliation. When Matthew passed along the message to Elizabeth, she still would not be told that she couldn't do something. Mafia or no mafia. Why did she care, right? It wasn't going to be her kneecaps that were going to get blown off. But with Matthew, along with Michael Esquivel and Gary Frenzel, trying to talk some sense into her, telling her, look, logistically, it's just not possible. Even if they wanted to get everything out of the old building by midnight, 
the place still needed to be cleared by the state because of the nature of their company being a biotech. The landlord wouldn't be able to rent the place out immediately even if he wanted to. They were just going to have to eat February's rent. Unfortunately, this whole situation was more than Matthew Bissell was willing to put up with anymore. It had been more than two years that he had spent as Elizabeth's right-hand man. He had seen way too many people who had once been fiercely loyal to Elizabeth fired at the drop of a hat. He'd seen her turn on people in the blink of an eye, even at the slightest inkling that someone even doubted or questioned her. They were done. They were gone. Matthew felt that this was creeping up on him, particularly after the whole fracas over the move. It was particularly hard on him because whenever Elizabeth did fire someone, he was the one in charge of making sure they no longer had electronic access to anything, and he was the one who escorted everybody off the property. He was also responsible for keeping any dirt that they had on everyone and file it away to be used against former employees in the future, if necessary. And this whole collecting dirt on people will bring us back to the former CFO, Henry Mosley, who I mentioned a moment ago wasn't fired officially for finding out that Theranos was faking blood testing analytics. There was another reason that became the official reason. And Matthew was basically in charge of making the whole thing happen, and he felt pretty bad about it. Shortly after Elizabeth fired Henry Mosley, Matthew was working on clearing out his computer, moving files to a private server for security purposes, things of that sort. And as he was doing so, he found out that Henry Mosley had either been browsing or keeping not suitable for work sexual materials on his computer. When Matthew informed Elizabeth of what he had discovered, that became the story of why he was fired. And while looking at explicit materials on his work laptop wasn't the wisest thing to do, Matthew still didn't think it was something that Elizabeth should be using to blackmail somebody. They also didn't discover Mosley's extracurricular internet activities until after he was fired. So telling people that that was the reason he was gone was just another big lie. So for Matthew Bissell, combined with everything else, it just became too much for him. Matthew decided that then was as good a time as any to chase after his own dreams instead of somebody else's and start up his own IT consulting company. Elizabeth was stunned when he told her. She couldn't understand why he would quit his job with a company that was on pace to change the world to try to start his own firm. It didn't make any sense. She tried talking him out of it. She tried offering him more money and a higher position. But Matthew told her that he'd made up his mind. And nothing would be the same between him and Elizabeth from that point forward. What he had seen happen time and time again to employees who crossed Elizabeth began happening to him. She stopped speaking to him. She wouldn't even make eye contact with him anymore. 
But to me, that kind of sounds like it would make things more comfortable around the workplace. But anyway, Elizabeth approached one of Matthew's subordinates named Ed Ruiz, and she made him an offer. Find her some dirt on Matthew, and she would promote him to his position. But here's the thing. When it comes to Elizabeth, it didn't seem like she ever spent any significant amount of time in the workforce outside of being the CEO of Theranos. And she doesn't seem to grasp the nature of a cohesive work environment. People in the company were forming relationships that Elizabeth seemed did not think existed or were even possible. Like this was a sort of beehive type environment. She saw herself as the queen bee and everybody there were just worker bees who only lived to work for her and to please her. And she didn't seem to be able to fathom the idea that people are human, they have emotions, they are intrinsically social, and they tend to forge relationships within the work environment, even environments like the one that she's cultivated. And so it was for Matthew Bissell and Ed Ruiz. When Elizabeth offered Ed a promotion, if he went through all of Matthew's electronic correspondences and files and dig up some dirt, he said no. He wouldn't have found anything anyway. And several months after Matthew launched his IT firm, Ed Ruiz joined his company. And I looked it up today. And it seems as though Matthew's company is called Imperial Clinical Research Services. It's based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's linked up on LinkedIn with Ed Ruiz. And from what I can see, a relative named Brandon Bissell has been named president of the company as of January 1st, 2021. So it sounds like Matthew Bissell went on to do okay for himself. But anyway, as smart as everybody seems to think Elizabeth Holmes was and or is, there is something to be said for a higher education, life experiences, and the ability to read the room. And if I'm being honest, I think she's lacking a lot of that. Okay, I gave up after that last sentence. I'm back at this for a third time, so let's see if we can make it all the way through. This is one stubborn ass cold. But anyway, if you remember from part one, I talked about a couple of people who'd come over to Theranos from Apple. Justin Maxwell... Mike Bowerly, and Aaron Moore. They had been wooed over by former Apple iPhone designer Anna Ariola, and Anna had been wooed over by Avi Tavanian. And ultimately, it was Avi's sudden departure, with Elizabeth wanting him off the board of directors, that shook Anna up, leading her to deliver her letter of resignation, effective immediately, to Elizabeth. So after the move to the new building, Aaron, Justin, and Mike, they sound like a group of podcasters, right? So Aaron, Justin, and Mike had developed a pretty close working relationship, especially after Anna resigned. 
which happened very suddenly and kind of shook them up a little bit. But Justin had been the one who was particularly bothered by it because Anna was the person who convinced him to quit his job at Apple and to join her at Theranos. But as long as the company seemed to be moving in the right direction, then he figured things must be going okay. And the massive move into the new building was a positive sign to him. Not too long after they all got settled into their new office, Aaron and Mike took it upon themselves to carry out some rudimentary tests with a couple of the blood testing system prototypes. Basically, they wanted to see how people who were not familiar with the process were able to work with the thing, how they went through the finger pricking and through all of the steps of using the cartridge and running the test themselves, as that was ultimately the idea at that point. When many of us came to know about Theranos's machine, the idea had evolved into having a blood testing system in every Walgreens, putting it within just miles of every single home in America, right? That was Elizabeth's big selling point. But at this time, the idea was to have every home have a machine, or at least in the homes of patients who needed to frequently test their blood and would be able to do so right there in the comfort of their own home and to have the diagnoses transmitted directly to their doctor and for the doctor to be able to develop a treatment plan and so on and so forth. So Aaron and Mike kind of wanted to get an idea of what it's like for someone to use the machine for the first time. You see, there were some Theranos employees who had tried the thing so many times that they were beginning to lose feeling in their fingertips from the repeated needle pricking. They got permission from the engineer who built these machines, Tony Nugent and Dave Nelson, to take it out and to do some testing amongst their friends. The sleek cases that the Edison would eventually have built around them were still being finalized, so the thing at this time was pretty crude looking, like, I guess, a lot of beta versions of things. It had that glue robot arm inside that grated around pretty loudly, with pieces often breaking off because the arm hadn't been programmed to not bump into the testing cartridge, which, by the way, at the time was inserted through a little metal swinging door that uh, the only thing I can equate it to looking like is like the door on a bubble gum machine after you put your quarter in and the gumball drops down and you flip the little door open to retrieve it. John Carreyrou described the whole Edison machine at this point in time as something you might see at a middle school science fair, which I suppose is a step up from being something you might see at an elementary school science fair. So there's that. So as Aaron and Mike's guinea pig friends humored them and their little machine, one of the things that was becoming abundantly clear after stabbing their friends in the fingers is that a single needle prick was not working. Getting the blood from the fingertip into the cartridge wasn't as easy as it might sound. To me, it doesn't seem like it should have been that big of a problem because there have been those glucose testing strip thingies that use a finger prick of blood and then you just put the little strip right up to the blood and it sucks it right up, right? 
I had a kid that I used to take care of that was diabetic. And the only reason I wouldn't be able to get that drop of blood onto the strip is if the kid was acting up like a little jerk. Those things just absorb all of the blood right away. But the way the cartridge worked, after cleaning the fingertip with rubbing alcohol, they'd prick the finger, but instead of just being able to put the blood drop up into the thing and let it absorb straight from the finger, the blood first had to go onto an aspiration pen. I guess this was sort of a way to aerate the blood to give it a little bit more volume. At least that's what it sounds like to me. Then, like a syringe, a plunger had to be depressed in order for this aerated blood to be injected into the cartridge. This was the most complicated part that patients needed to be able to do for themselves. Not very many of Aaron and Mike's friends were able to get it on their first attempt. Some of them took several times and several cartridges, and that gets super expensive. The last we heard, each one was about $200 to make, and they are single use only. Can they be put into like a sharps container and recycled and reused like needles and stuff? I don't even know if Theranos had even gotten that far with it. Maybe we'll find out later on. As we know, most companies do like best practices when it comes to corporate, social, and environmental responsibility and $200 single-use cartridges being used in every home in America doesn't really sound that great to me, but that's maybe just me because I'm cheap. On top of everything else with these experiments, it turned out to be a big, huge mess, and these guys were getting blood all over everything. So add biohazard on top of environmental hazard as well. It was becoming abundantly clear that Theranos and Elizabeth were overestimating the abilities of an elderly person to be able to do this type of self-serve blood testing at home. So even if the engineers were able to work out all the kinks and bugs with the machine itself, what difference would it make if getting the blood from the finger to the contraption itself took an act of engineering in and of itself on the part of the patient? After having spent some time trying to get their friends to master the blood draw and the cartridge insertion with little success, Aaron and Mike talked to Elizabeth about this problem, but she really didn't seem all that concerned about whether or not a person could actually physically complete the process. And to me, the fact that she's hardly bothered with the thing being user-friendly is just another indicator that Elizabeth has little to no real-world understanding of how the average person operates on a day-to-day basis. And honestly, I think the thing is so far removed from being inside the average person's home that she's not even thinking about the interaction between the patient and the machine. It's way off into the future. She doesn't even have the stupid thing working yet. And we're talking five years and millions of dollars in already. Not to mention the merry-go-round of employees that have come and gone since then. Adding to Aaron's frustration, he was not only losing his enthusiasm that he once had for Theranos, Ted Nugent had become his direct supervisor and their relationship was pretty icy. It had gotten to the point where Aaron had put in a request to be transferred into the sales department instead of engineering, 
but he wasn't sure how serious Elizabeth was going to entertain the idea. So, according to Carrie Rose's book, Aaron was at home, and I guess to give this whole situation a little levity, he took a couple of pictures of those prototype Edison machines, and he doctored up a fake online advertisement as a joke, like he was selling two of the machines as the most functional Theranos Edison's, the quote-unquote iPod of healthcare, and it said, I bought these recently when I thought I was at risk of succumbing to septic shock. Now that I've tested my protein C and realized that I'm safely in the four micrograms per milliliter range, I no longer need a pre-production blood analytic device. My loss is your gain. Comes with assorted blood collection accessories, leeches, etc. $10,000 for the pair, $6,000 a piece or best offer. And he printed it up and had it with him the next day in his office. Everyone who saw it thought it was pretty funny. So much so that Mike, his buddy from Apple, went and pinned it to the wall in the men's restroom. Which I thought was kind of a nerdy thing to be pinning up into the men's restroom. But I don't really want to know what goes on in there anyway, so whatever. Well... This got back to Elizabeth quickly, and she immediately thought it was an actual ad that somebody posted on Craigslist. She summoned all of her department managers and attorneys and announced that there was a Benedict Arnold amongst them committing an act of treason. She wanted the saboteur to be brought before her. Aaron needed to confess that he was the one who did it before Elizabeth started sentencing people to death. So... He told his supervisor, Tony, first, and Tony let Elizabeth know. Aaron's presence was requested in Elizabeth's office. She was so filled with rage that he was sure that his days at Theranos were over. While she didn't exactly banish him into the pit of former employees, he had one foot out the door. She told him to forget any transfer to sales There was no way that he was anywhere close to being someone that she could trust to deal with customers directly. And from there, Aaron knew things were never going to be the same after that. As it turned out, moving to the sales department may not have been all that great of a move for Aaron to begin with. And this is where we start seeing more of the early signs that Elizabeth was not exactly being forthcoming when it came to what she was telling potential customers, all of the pharmaceutical companies and whatnot, in regards to revenue and those projections that were grossly exaggerated. And the reason for that is because Edison didn't work. If the thing did work, perhaps revenue projections that may have been a little inflated to help move the sales and marketing along could have been acceptable. But the blood testing system did not work. In fact, it wasn't even close to working. And we're going to come to find that it never would. Elizabeth had hired a new guy to be the new sales executive. And apparently this guy looked every bit the part of a sales exec. His name was Todd Surdy. He was the expensive suit guy, the luxury car guy. On his lunch break, he would 
ride his bicycle in the hills type of guy. And up until he was hired, Elizabeth was basically the head of sales herself. There were a couple of executives who worked beneath him back east since there were a number of big pharma companies out that way, and one of them was named Susan DiGiamo. She had been working for Elizabeth for a couple of years by the time Todd was brought on, and she had already seen Elizabeth's attempts at making promises that she knew that they could not keep, and this included customizable Edison's. I mean, Theranos didn't even have a functioning proprietary system, much less the ability to customize them to a drug company's individual specifications. But just like everyone else, Susan could only sit by and let Elizabeth run amok with all of her empty promises. Todd reached out to Susan. Like most everyone else who dealt with Elizabeth and Theranos, he had pointed questions, particularly when it came to the revenues that were going to come from the deals that Elizabeth had been working on and what those projections looked like. And while she did have that information all laid out in spreadsheets, it all looked super unrealistic into the tens of millions of dollars. And nobody believed that they were anywhere near that, especially without a functioning final product. And to be able to demonstrate these to pharma companies that the thing was actually working and would work reliably. The company wasn't going to be able to make a dime until then, at least not legitimately anyway. So in order for Theranos to prove that the Edison worked, this is how the process is laid out in Carrie Rue's Bad Blood. When a drug or pharma company makes a deal, there is a validation period, which is essentially a tryout. The company will pay a certain amount of money for that validation period, but they'll have a cap around maybe $150,000 or so. If they get through the tryout and the company didn't like the machine, what they'll do is they'll cut their losses and the deal is dead in the water. That's what happened back in Tennessee in 2007 when Elizabeth traveled to Nashville and tested the machine for Pfizer on a handful of hospital staff members and two terminal cancer patients. What Theranos was trying to show specifically with the cancer patients is that the Edison could assist Pfizer in determining the response to drugs that were being prescribed by calculating the accumulation of three proteins in the blood made by the body when a cancer is growing. So this is some pretty serious diagnostics that are happening here. To be able to look at the blood and to tell immediately from home if their tumor is actually growing. That's huge. So if Theranos was able to make that correlation and Pfizer decided to partner with Theranos, then they'd be rolling in the dough. But if the testing failed, there would be no partnership and all of Elizabeth's revenue projections would be in the garbage. That is, if she allowed the truth about the testing to be known. And we've already established that even as early as 2007, she was having her lackeys back home in Palo Alto transmit falsified results to Nashville. Cancer patients were getting a fake diagnosis. These people were terminally ill. So maybe it didn't matter because to her, these people were going to die anyway. 
But what if they got results that their cancer wasn't growing? That could be giving somebody false hopes of more time to be with their families and loved ones. It's actually pretty sad when you peel away all of the layers that are Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos because we know she used that emotional angle from her own personal experiences with her family members being diagnosed with cancer and dying so quickly. She used that to her advantage and to take advantage. When Todd started asking questions, Susan was honest with him. She never saw any actual results that were validated. The times that she traveled with Elizabeth to give live demonstrations, the machines did not work properly, if at all. And she shared with him that for the two years following the initial failed Novartis demo in Switzerland back in 2006, when Tim Kemp sent false results back from Palo Alto, Elizabeth strung the drug company along for two more years until she was able to go back for a second visit and the thing still wasn't working. How did Susan know that their blood testing machine wasn't working? Because she sat there for several hours pricking her finger alongside Elizabeth, who was also pricking her finger, trying and failing to get anything that was even remotely consistent. And if that wasn't bad enough, when they arrived at the live demo the next morning before an audience of stuffy executives, all of the Edison's little electronic screens were flashing an error notification. While Susan was hoping in that moment for the earth to swallow her up, Elizabeth didn't skip a beat, explaining that it's merely a tiny glitch, nothing to worry about. From all the things that new sales executive Todd Surdy was being told, it seemed like the only glitch in this whole thing was Elizabeth. Her outrageously inflated sales projections and technology that just doesn't work. Todd decided to speak to Theranos' lead attorney at the time, Michael Esquivel, about his concerns because they had actually developed a pretty good working relationship up to that point. While Michael Esquivel was starting to have some issues with the things going on with Theranos also, particularly the partnerships that they'd been establishing or attempting to establish with the various pharmaceutical companies. So in March of 2008, Todd Surdy and Michael Esquivel set up a meeting with one of their board members, a pretty savvy business person in his 60s named Tom Brodine. And they were going to discuss Elizabeth's exaggerated revenue forecast that they simply could not justify because they weren't sure when the Edison would be ready to be sold on the market. Because what they did know was they really weren't that close to being ready. Board member Tom Brodine, he was kind of like the new guy around there. So he suggested that they need to take up their concerns with Don Lucas, who had been on the board for a while by then. If you remember, he was an early investor and a board member. He was the one who called for Avi Tavanian to resign after he had brought up similar issues that he had had with Elizabeth and Theranos just a couple of months earlier. Well, this time, with Todd and Michael approaching him, Don Lucas decided maybe it was a good time to sit down and listen to what these guys had to say. He didn't want to listen to Avi, but now he was thinking this is more than just a coincidence and maybe there's something to this. 
There was also the fact that Todd Surdy was the son-in-law of one of Don Lucas's best friends and fellow venture capitalists. So he was going to take him more seriously than he did Avi. And what Todd was telling him, as Carrie Rue wrote it, Elizabeth's revenue projections are not grounded in reality. Ouch. I like calling it Elizabeth in Wonderland. An emergency meeting amongst the board members was called in Don Lucas's office, and Elizabeth was told she needed to wait outside while they discussed. I can only imagine how this made Elizabeth feel. But, you know, these are her money people. She may think that she's the queen bee, but as long as somebody else is footing the bill, she's beholden to them. And the talks inside were not going well for Elizabeth, as they had decided the best thing to do in moving forward was for them to remove her from her position as chief executive officer. They had come to the conclusion that she did not know what she was doing. She was too young. She had just turned 24 a month earlier. She simply did not have the experience or the know-how to run a company like this. At the risk of sounding redundant, maybe somebody should have stayed in school, perhaps? Well, they finally invited Elizabeth in and told her what they were hearing about the revenue projections, the state of the technology, and that they decided that she should step down as CEO and that Tom Brodeen would be the interim CEO until they decided upon a replacement. If nothing else, Elizabeth Holmes just had this way about her that could win people over even when they'd already made up their minds about something. She had just enough charisma mixed with just enough self-reproach to talk the board out of ousting her as CEO. She promised, crossed her heart and hoped to die, she would do better. She would be more clear. She would be more transparent. She would be more receptive. It's an example of how Elizabeth would be able to survive time and time again for years to come. But that meant the others would have to go. Todd Surdy and Michael Esquivel were the ones who initiated this. And they needed Elizabeth to end up banished if they expected their jobs to carry on. But because she rose from the ashes and they were the ones who had burned her, within a couple of weeks, they were both gone for good. The former Apple guys, Aaron, Justin, and Mike, they started a podcast. I'm just kidding. They didn't do that. They were really bothered by Todd and Michael's sudden departure. John Carreyrou called it a purge. I call it banishment to the pit. The hard part is, is that they didn't know why Todd and Michael were gone, but they did know that they liked those guys. And again, it particularly bothered Justin the most. He just really had never seen employees come and go at the rate that they were at Theranos. And it didn't make for a workplace environment conducive of teamwork, confidence, or veracity. And all of that was being perpetuated by certain members of the staff who went along with whatever Elizabeth said or wanted to hear, Tim Kemp being one of them. Remember, he was the one who was sending out falsified results when they were running tests in Switzerland and 
in back east in Nashville. Even when Tim Kemp was clearly lying, even when he was called out on it, it didn't matter if it was what Elizabeth wanted to believe or have others believe. In a sense, Elizabeth and Tim enabled each other. Justin is also the same guy, and I remember hearing this in a podcast, and you may have heard it too. He had sent an email to Elizabeth asking to speak to her about something or asking her for something, but she emailed him back saying that they would deal with it in the morning when she was back at work. And then a few minutes later, he ran into Elizabeth, who was still clearly in the building at work, at which point he turned around and walked away really angrily. And then the next day, Elizabeth confronted Justin and told him that she understood why he was upset, but to never, ever walk away from her like that again. So it's always everybody else's fault, even when she's proven to be a liar. Justin is also the one who gave Elizabeth two self-help book recommendations before quitting two days later. He just couldn't do it anymore. Despite trying to convince himself that he was working for someone who had no idea what she was doing, and he was trying to talk himself into being patient and understanding, but it was all too late. He was over it. He resigned via email address to Elizabeth since there was apparently no human resources department. I guess that was all Elizabeth too, with her pit of banishment. That's human resources, I guess. Before he left, she summoned him to her office so she could chew him out one last time before ironically demanding that he quit with a shred of dignity. And then Justin's former Apple friends, Mike and Aaron, followed him out the door before the end of the year. However, before they both decided to quit, Aaron attempted to get through to Elizabeth that the Edison was garbage and they needed to slow down on trying to get it out to the market. But he knew that she wasn't going to listen to him. This information would have to come from the ass-kissing members of the staff, the senior ass-kissers like Tim Kemp, Tony Nugent, or Gary Frenzel. But they weren't going to do it. Tony was actually under a tremendous amount of pressure and got tired of Aaron's whining about the Edison and told him to just go, quit Theranos if you don't believe in it. And Aaron was like, you know what? That's the best idea I've heard since I've started. And he resigned in June of 2008, followed by Mike in December. Everyone who had come from Apple was now gone, which Elizabeth only viewed as an era of chaos in Theranos' history. And now that all those Apple know-it-alls were no more, Perhaps they could actually get this company running like a well-oiled machine. Yeah, no, that's not going to be happening. Okay, so in Carrie Rue's book, there's kind of this interesting side story that works its way around to having an impact on Theranos, but it was a thing that was a lot of years in the making. And it was carried out by a man who just was really vindictive he had this vindictive streak in him and I was almost going to leave it out of the timeline because I didn't want to stray too off topic but when I looked up some of the podcasts that I listened to and tried to see if there were any mentions of him I didn't see him at all 
maybe he was buried somewhere, possibly in some of the premium subscriptions on those podcasts dedicated to this story. But I decided to keep it in and to close out the second part of the series with this storyline. It's about an entrepreneur slash medical devices inventor named Dr. Richard Fwiz. And his name is spelled F-U-I-S-Z. I looked it up and it looks like it's pronounced Fwiz. After I get through this, part three will pick up in the timeline at the beginning of 2009 when we get back to the whole Theranos thing. But I really want to tell you about Richard Fwiz because this is kind of interesting. So Elizabeth's mom and dad, their names were Chris and Noel. They had these neighbors back in the 1980s when they were still living in Washington, D.C., Richard and Lorraine Fwiz. They also had kids close in age attending the same school as Elizabeth and her brother Christian. And while Noelle and Lorraine were friends and socialized on a regular basis, they had lunch dates, play dates, just like, you know, moms, regular old moms do. The dads, Chris and Richard, they weren't friendly at all. There was this inequity when it came to the salaries that the men earned. While Elizabeth's dad was a decent provider, I think a lot of times people are under the impression that Elizabeth had this really, really super privileged upbringing, but there were some struggles along the way. It wasn't all smooth sailing. So I I watched a couple of videos on YouTube and I think they gave the wrong impression of the Holmeses and the time that Elizabeth and her brother were being raised. But anyway, his, her dad was a decent provider with his job working for the federal government. Richard Fwiz was a doctor and an inventor and an entrepreneur who founded a company that produced medical training videos, which he ended up selling for $50 million. And he was kind of a show-off, and he loved reminding everybody that he was rich and that everybody else isn't rich And with his millions of dollars, he liked driving around town in his Ferrari. And the truth is, Chris felt like Richard was a bit of a jackass. And he wasn't afraid to share that sentiment with his children, Elizabeth and Christian. And Lorraine Fwiz soon figured out that her good friend's husband was just green with envy. They were the haves and Elizabeth's parents were the have-nots. I had brought up in the beginning how Elizabeth's dad's father and grandfather had squandered the fortune that his great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather had earned. Carrie Rue described their lifestyles as hedonistic, lavish, and unsuccessful. It was an issue that Elizabeth's dad carried with him for his entire life. But regardless, the moms managed to stay friends despite Chris's resentments towards Richard. And when Elizabeth's parents relocated to California and ultimately to Texas, Noelle and Lorraine stayed in touch and stayed friends, and they would visit whenever anyone was in each other's town. The women even traveled together with their children, sometimes to New York City, and stayed at a lavish apartment that they owned in Trump Tower. Things didn't get any better for Elizabeth's dad when he made the unfortunate mistake of leaving a job and accepting a position at Enron, the biggest company in Houston, Texas at the time. Now, 
I, like I said, I watched a video on YouTube about this case. I didn't get that far into it because I felt like it was somewhat misleading because of all of the things that Elizabeth's dad did over his lifetime, they decided to call him a former executive at Enron, which I think is very misleading because he spent less than a year at the company. And I'm going to tell you what happened and then this timeline. And you're going to see that Elizabeth's dad's connection to Enron really isn't as nefarious as it's been made out to sound. So let me explain the whole Enron backstory and Elizabeth's dad's connection to it. And I think you're going to find it's not as scandalous as I think it's been made out to be in the media. I found an article on investopedia.com that summed up the whole thing with Enron pretty concisely. Despite it being one of the most dramatic and complicated and fastest collapses of a company in American history. So I'm going to explain in case there are those of you who are unfamiliar with Enron. Founded in 1985 by Kenneth Lay, Enron was a merger between Lay's company called Houston Natural Gas and Internorth, which were both pretty small companies, energy companies in Texas. At its height, Enron, an electricity, natural gas, communications, and paper company, employed more than 29,000 people and claimed to have earned $101 billion in 2000. Emphasis on the word claimed. From 1995 to 2001, Fortune magazine named Enron America's most innovative company. So it's no wonder that Elizabeth's dad was lured over to the company in 2001. In 1998, Andrew Fastow was named chief financial officer, and he would ultimately go on to create a network of companies within the company in order to hide Enron's losses. By late 2000, going into 2001, Enron's stocks reached an all-time high, trading at $90.56 per share. On February 12, 2001, Kenneth Lay was replaced as CEO by then-COO Jeffrey Skilling, but remained on the board of directors. However, six months later, on August 14, 2001, Skilling suddenly resigned and Lay became CEO once again. At the same time, Enron's broadband division reported a massive loss of $137 million, and the company's stock suddenly took a nosedive to $39.95 a share. On October 12, 2001, accounting firm Arthur Anderson's legal advisors instructed their auditors to destroy all of Enron's files, except for a minimal amount of basic documents. Four days later, on October 16th, Enron reported $618 million in losses and $1.2 billion in write-offs, meaning they cut the value of their assets by $1.2 billion, basically. Stocks dropped again to $38.84 per share. Six days later, Enron announced that it had been hit with the Security and Exchange Commission's probe meaning the feds were getting involved to see what the heck was going on here with Enron. Stocks dropped that same day to $20.75. 
On November 8, 2001, Enron admitted that it had been inflating their income since 1997 to the tune of $586 million. Three weeks later, on November 29th, the feds expanded their investigation to include Arthur Anderson accounting, and on December 2, 2001, Enron filed for bankruptcy. Their stock closed out at $0.26 cents per share. The numbers and the losses were and are staggering. The greed at the executive level is just insane. It's like for some, and I think I've said this before, no matter how much wealth a person has, for some reason, it's like never enough. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on. But to just give you an idea, let me tell you, their insider trading game was strong. Despite all the news coming out of Enron in the months leading up to the bankruptcy that I just detailed in the timeline, while the insiders knew that the company was going to implode on itself because of all of the inflated revenue reports and hidden losses, they weren't going to tell any of their investors, but they were going to start selling off their shares of stocks. They were telling their investors, while stocks had peaked at $90.56, that the value was going to continue to increase upwards of $130 to $140 per share. Of course, this was never going to happen, but those insiders quietly began selling off millions and millions of dollars in stocks, knowing full well that before the end of the year, it was going to be worthless. But these shares, they continued to lose value in the stock market. They could easily see that. But investors were told, just keep buying, hang on to your shares because Enron's going to rebound in a magnificent fashion. Kenneth Lay was a big reason for that. They trusted him. The way people trusted Elizabeth. He had this ability to calm investors and to keep them hooked while he was busy dumping everything that he had in Enron. The investors didn't know what was going on. Similar to the way most, if not all, major Theranos investors knew nothing about biotech or biochemistry. And so all through the summer of 2001, the price of Enron's stock continued to plummet, and investors were seeing this as a great opportunity to get in on the action, never considering that a company of that size and that magnitude could possibly collapse. And all of it was based on Kenneth Lay's little press conferences assuring everyone that they did not want to miss out on this deal. Again, kind of like Theranos. In the end, Kenneth Lay ended up unloading $99 million worth of stock. It was millions of shares that were soon going to be worth nothing. And his wife, this is how crazy this was. Okay, so his wife, her name is Linda Lay. She sold 500,000 shares of stock on November 28, 2001, for a total of $1.2 million. Roughly 10 minutes after Linda made that sale, the news hit that not only had Enron been hiding hundreds of millions of dollars in losses, but a merger with another company called Dynergy had fallen through, and then within a couple hours of that, Enron stocks had dropped to 26 cents the same day that his wife sold off all of her shares. 
Four short days later, Enron filed for bankruptcy. As a result of the involvement in the Enron scandal, the Arthur Anderson accounting firm also saw 85,000 employees lose their jobs. Despite the fact the firm's obstruction of justice conviction was subsequently overturned, it was too late for all of those jobs and for Arthur Anderson to rebound from it, and they were finished for good. Close to 29,000 Enron employees lost their jobs and their retirement accounts, and that included Elizabeth's dad, Chris. So when you hear that Elizabeth Holmes has family ties to the Enron scandal, it's not as scandalous as it sounds. Her dad had just made an unfortunately timed job change, and he was there for less than a year. After Elizabeth's dad lost his job at Enron, he actually turned to his arch enemy, Richard Fwiz, and was asking about potential job openings or any help that he might have to offer. At the time, the Holmeses were in Texas, but were looking to move back to Washington, D.C., but Chris Holmes needed to find work first. Richard told him that he and his oldest son had founded a brand new company in Great Falls, Virginia, which is not too far away from Washington, D.C. The company manufactured an oral dissolve tab that Richard developed, which enabled medications to be more rapidly absorbed into a person's bloodstream versus taking regular capsules or tablets. Richard even had a vacant house just 15 minutes away in the city of McLean, Virginia. He invited Chris and his family to stay there for free until they got settled. But here I tend to think that Chris Holmes's pride got the best of him because he ended up turning down Richard's job offer and rent-free home offers. Based on events that would eventually take place with Richard Fwiz, this would turn out to be probably one of the best decisions for Chris and his family. It wasn't until four years later in 2005 that Elizabeth's parents made their way back to Washington, D.C. after Chris Holmes found a position with the World Wildlife Foundation. They were able to reside with some friends of theirs until they found a new home to purchase. Noel and Lorraine reconnected and began hanging out again. By this time, Elizabeth had founded Theranos, and Noel Holmes was very happy to tell Lorraine Fwiz about Elizabeth's company and told her what she was working on inventing. However, Noel's description was a little bit off and exactly what it was that Elizabeth was doing because she said Elizabeth had developed a blood analysis device that was to be worn on the patient's wrist. We know by then, though, that Elizabeth had 86 the skin patch idea and moved on to the blood analysis system with the cartridge and the reader. However, in telling Lorraine about Elizabeth's startup and what her daughter was working on, she unwittingly opened up a whole can of worms that she really could not have seen coming and was going to cause Elizabeth Holmes a lot of problems some years down the line. So Lorraine went home and told her medical device inventing husband Richard about Elizabeth's medical device invention idea and her company. I don't know if Lorraine just told him in casual conversation, thinking it would be a topic that he would find interesting, or if she knew that he was actually going to react to what she was telling him. 
In Carrie Rue's book, he said that she likely did not anticipate the way that he was going to react to the news that Elizabeth had started a biotech company. Richard Fwiz was a very arrogant and prideful person. I was a bit surprised by what bothered him so much about this whole thing. But apparently he took exception with the fact that Elizabeth had the audacity to start a biomedical tech company, which is what his whole career and fortune had been based on, without seeking his assistance or consultation. He and Lorraine had been friends with the Holmeses for just about 20 years, and for their daughter to go off like this and start Theranos without so much as a word to him, for some reason, Richard Fwiz was so offended by that. In the book, John Carreyrou wrote this, quote, The fact that the Holmes family was so willing to partake of our hospitality, trips to New York, dinners, etc., made it particularly bitter to me that they would not ask me for advice. Essentially, what he took away from this, from the Holmeses, is that they'll drink our wine, but I won't ask you for advice in the very field that paid for that wine. In my opinion, I don't see any of this as a slight on Richard Fwiz as he sees it. I honestly think that there's a possibility that it didn't even cross Elizabeth's mind or her parents. It may have, not in a consulting way, but maybe Richard did come up as a topic of conversation in the early days when Elizabeth was looking for investors. She did ask that parent of her childhood friend from the time that she lived in California, who was a venture capitalist, and he did invest. She asked a couple of people that she knew at Stanford. She asked family members and friends of her parents. And if Richard and Lorraine Fwiz had been brought up, knowing what we know about Chris Holmes and his feelings towards Richard, it's likely that he told Elizabeth to just steer clear of him. Chris Holmes clearly did not like the guy and didn't want his daughter getting him involved in her venture. I mean, Chris, at one of his lowest points after losing his job at Enron, wouldn't even accept a job offer and a free place to stay from the guy. So I'm certain he would not want Elizabeth asking for or accepting anything from him. I would even go so far as to say that Chris probably thought that Richard was shrewd and untrustworthy, and we would come to find out that there is a lot of truth in that. Apparently, Richard Fwiz was known for this type of behavior and these type of over-the-top reactions. Once somebody crossed him, he never really let it go and he would hang on to the resentment, and he would seek retribution no matter how long it took. Before Elizabeth, Richard had a serious problem with the chief executive officer of a company that manufactured hospital equipment. His name was Vernon Lokes, and the company that he headed was called Baxter International. Richard and Vernon met while they were both on a business trip in Paris. Then they got to talking, And as it were, Richard's medical video production business called Medcom, his main market was actually in the Middle East. Paris was a stopover for him on his way home to Washington, D.C. from the Saudi Arabian area. Vernon was interested in expanding Baxter International into the Middle East. So that very same night that they met, 
Vernon offered Richard $53 million to buy out Medcom, and Richard accepted the deal. And a part of that deal was for Richard to remain the head of the company that he was selling to Vernon for three years. But right after Vernon acquired Medcom, he either fired Richard or he laid him off. Whatever the case was, it turned ugly. Richard sued Vernon and Baxter International, claiming that he was wrongfully terminated. He also accused Vernon of terminating him because supposedly Baxter International had been blacklisted in Saudi Arabia for conducting business with Israel. And Vernon allegedly wanted Richard to pay a multi-million dollar bribe to have his company taken off the blacklist. But Richard claimed that he refused to do so, so he was fired. The case was settled out of court in 1986, and Richard Fizz was awarded a judgment of $800,000. But the animosity between the men only grew worse when Richard traveled to Baxter International Headquarters to meet with Vernon to finalize the settlement. When Richard extended his hand to shake Vernon's, Vernon left him hanging. This infuriated Richard, and Vernon was back squarely in Richard's sights. So dreamers, I hope you're all following along here because this is so convoluted, but so interesting to me at the same time. Okay, so three years later, Baxter International was removed from being blacklisted in Saudi Arabia. And apparently Richard was still stalking the company all that time later. And he came to find out that the boycott was lifted. So he saw an opportunity to get revenge for that handshake snub. By that time, Richard had volunteered as an undercover agent with the CIA in Washington, D.C. And one aspect of his work involved setting up businesses that were fronts in the Middle East so that the CIA would be able to work outside of the American embassy while not drawing attention to themselves as they spied on the region. So Richard had so many connections in the Saudi oil industry that a phony oil rig supply operations company Richard set up made for the perfect cover. So I know all of this is sounding like a big movie plot, and I hope you're, you're sticking with me here. Okay, so Richard caught wind that Vernon had gotten Baxter International off the blacklist through some deceptive means. So in order to exact revenge for that handshake that never was, Richard decided that he was going to uncover the deception, Vernon's deception, and expose him. So I'm going to try to simplify this as much as possible. But what Richard did is he sent in a female undercover agent to get a copy of a memo that was being kept at the Arab League Committee, which was set up to coordinate the political, cultural, economic, and social programs of the 22 members of the Arab League, as well as work out disputes between them and other parties. So the Arab League enforces boycotts. While Vernon submitted documents indicating that Baxter International sold its Israeli plant, along with a guarantee that the company was no longer conducting business with or in Israel, which is the reason why they were blacklisted in the first place. Well, the documents that Vernon's company provided violated United States government anti-boycotting legislation, 
which of course is a big, huge no-no. Well, now Richard had this damning memo in his hands. So he forwarded it to the board of directors of Baxter International and to the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal immediately made this front page news. Richard was also able to obtain other documents that corroborated the violations. This caused the Department of Justice to investigate and ultimately indicted and convicted Baxter International in 1993 of the anti-boycotting violations and the company was hit with criminal and civil fines totaling more than $6.5 million. Further, the company was prohibited from obtaining any new contracts with the federal government for a period of four months and from conducting business with Saudi Arabia and Syria for 24 months. Baxter International's reputation was also now garbage, and they ended up losing a contract with a medical group worth more than $50 million. So now, this whole thing is happening 10 years after these men first met, and some seven years after that handshake. So remember, this guy just does not let anything go. And maybe it's not surprising, Richard Fwiz was not finished yet. Why? Because Vernon managed to pick back up after all the damage caused to Baxter International. After all that, he was also able to hang on to his position as CEO, and this just continued to infuriate Richard to no end. And he refused to stop. He had one more thing up his sleeve in order to further disgrace Vernon Laux. And it involved his position as a trustee of Yale University's governing body and as the chairman of fundraising. Vernon was a Yale graduate, and part of what he did annually was attend the school's commencements. Well, Richard's son had been a recent graduate of Yale too. So with his help, along with the help of some of his son's friends, they all passed out flyers at the graduation they held up signs and flew a banner across the sky with everything reading Vernon Lokes is bad for Yale and demanding that he resign. Vernon did resign from the governing body three months later. So that just gives you an idea of just how super vindictive Richard Fizz was and probably is. The dude's still alive. I don't know what he's up to, but he's probably doing some kind of plotting. But what Richard Fuz would go on to do to Theranos wasn't exactly the same thing. And it turned out it wasn't so much about Elizabeth and her parents' lack of gratitude for everything that he had done for them, but rather wanting in on what everybody else eventually would want in on. Remember the thing, the sentiment about Theranos that everybody had was everyone had FOMO, fear of missing out. It was an opportunity to make lots of money. And once people started seeing big names going into Theranos and investing, everybody wanted in. Richard became rich doing basically what Elizabeth was attempting to do, inventing products that companies would want sometime in the future. Remember Richard's quick dissolving drug strips that I mentioned? 
He got that idea when he saw a cotton candy machine at a county fair that he took his kids to. He reimagined that cotton candy spinner into a machine that would do the same thing to medications. He patented it and eventually sold it in a $154 million deal. His cut was a cool $30 million. When Richard found out about Theranos, he began researching on his computer. Even though Elizabeth was notoriously protective of Theranos' intellectual property, this was still early on in the game when Richard was looking into Theranos. It was the mid-spring of 2005 to be exact, so the company had been around for like a year or two. He browsed Theranos' website, and there he found a link to an interview that Elizabeth gave on NPR where she provided just enough of a description of the microfluidic blood diagnostics and that the goal was for it to be an in-home system. So to the average person, there might not be much that one could do with that information that Elizabeth was sharing online. But Richard was not only a medical device inventor, he was also a doctor, and he did see the potential in what Theranos was doing. But he also found some vulnerabilities that he could impose his wrath upon. After putting some thought into it, he figured out in order for this device that Elizabeth was developing to be an in-home thing, there was going to have to be some sort of communication system to let the doctors know when there were some concerning results going on at their patient's house. In September 2005, Richard emailed his patent attorney, but he actually didn't hear back from him until January of 2006. Amazingly, Richard didn't add his attorney to his retribution hit list, but he basically described what he wanted to him, a system to communicate abnormal blood testing results immediately to a healthcare provider when a patient is testing their own blood at home. It would have to be some kind of way to communicate electronically, like a barcode that can be scanned and an alert is sent out if a patient's blood tests are showing concerning interactions in the blood testing system. Together, they worked through the details of what this alert system could be, and Richard filed his application for this patent in April of 2006. There was nothing earth-shattering about this patent. It was just a combination of technologies that were already being used. Like I said, barcodes and microchips and a wireless server that would be encapsulated in a blood testing device. Just to make sure Elizabeth would eventually know from whom this patent was inspired, he named Theranos in his application. Because it takes 18 months for applications for patents to become accessible to the general public, nobody was going to find out about it right away. Two months after Richard filed his application, in June of 2006, Elizabeth was featured in Inc. magazine, as was Mark Zuckerberg in their 30 Under 30 feature. Around that time, Elizabeth's mom and Lorraine Fwiz got together at Lorraine's for lunch. And of course, Richard was lingering around, being all smuggy smug about what he had done. But he didn't tell anyone yet. He was just all super thrilled with himself. So they began talking about Elizabeth, you know, because her mom, Noelle, is super proud. The immediate attention was picking up steam by this time in 2006. 
John Carreyrou said in his book that as they ate lunch, Richard started talking in a sing-songy kind of voice. And, well, at the time that I wrote this, I said, since this is a podcast, I can do a sing-songy voice. And I was going to try to imitate how I imagine he said this, but my voice is kind of junk right now. So I'll do my best. But I can imagine him coming into the room and he's all like, well, you know, perhaps I could be of some assistance with Elizabeth's little business. It's so easy for a small company like Theranos to fall victim to being taken advantage of by larger corporations. I'd love to help assist and guide her along, you know, a favor for some old friends. And Noel, she read right into that. He didn't say anything about his patent application, but he didn't have to. Things quickly soured between the Holmeses and the Fuizes, though they still socialized a couple more times in 2006, but things weren't the same as it was before. One of those times was late in the year when both couples met for dinner at a local sushi place. They began talking about Theranos, and Elizabeth had just finished successfully bringing in the second round of investors, so things were going well. Perhaps this was Chris's chance to do a little dad bragging, but the conversation became somewhat cantankerous. Chris apparently made some kind of backhanded remark or compliment, backhanded compliment, about an expensive Chanel pendant that Lorraine had on, and then proceeded to say something that might have been taken as a threat because one of Richard's sons from a previous marriage actually worked for one of Chris's closest friends at a law firm that his friend was a partner at. Richard's son was an attorney, but Chris's friend was a senior partner. Anyway, the friction between the husbands had an effect on the relationship between the wives because Chris was convinced that Richard was plotting something. So whenever the wives got together for coffee or for lunch, Chris Holmes began going along with them. He just didn't trust either one of them. Lorraine also found out that Noel Holmes was kind of gossiping to their shared hairstylist too, and this embarrassed her tremendously. So yeah, all of this is getting, like, super petty. The last time Lorraine and Noel saw each other was during the holidays of 2007. Lorraine had come by the house with some desserts, and Elizabeth happened to be visiting her parents for Christmas. She was aware that things were tense between her parents and the Fuises, so she sat stoically throughout Lorraine's visit. Ten days later, on January 3rd, 2008, Richard's patent application became public to anyone who searched for it in the database. But it would be Theranos' lead chemist, Gary Frenzel, who discovered it sometime in May and went and told Elizabeth about it. But at the time, her reaction was a little bit muted. Her parents were no longer speaking to Lorraine and Richard, and Richard was telling his wife that his patent was the Theranos killer. A moment ago, I mentioned that Elizabeth's dad was good friends with a senior partner at the law office that Richard's son was an attorney at. Richard's son's name is John Fuiz. Well, in the summer of 2008, Chris went ahead and paid his old friend a visit. The attorney's name was Chuck Work. 
They had met more than 35 years earlier when they were working in Washington, D.C., but it turns out they had both grown up in California, and the two of them had coincidentally even gone to the same high school. It's just that Chuck was five years older. And over the years, Chuck had been really helpful, especially being an attorney for Chris and his family. When Chris found out that Richard had stolen a concept from Elizabeth and then had the audacity to patent it, he turned to Chuck for help, pointing out that Richard's son, John, was actually an attorney at his firm. Chuck knew John, but not very well, though they did work on a couple of cases together. Chuck's law firm had also been the ones who had worked on Theranos' patents in the past. So he was happy to meet with Elizabeth to see what they could do about Richard and this idea that he allegedly ripped off and patented for himself. Elizabeth came to visit Chuck along with another attorney named Ken Cage on September 22, 2008, and she had the Edison blood testing machine with her. By this time, the thing was looking very sleek. It was two-toned, it was black and white, it was roughly the shape of a cube, and it had a touchscreen interface panel that Chuck recognized as looking a lot like the iOS of an iPhone. You've probably seen pictures of the machine, but I'll post it on social media once this episode goes live. While Elizabeth brought the thing with her, she wasn't going to run any demonstrations, and we all know why, but it was impressive looking nonetheless. She said Theranos wanted to sue Richard Fuiz and asked if they would represent the company. Ken suggested a patent interference case, which was his specialty. The patent and trademark officials would make the determination as to who came up with the idea first, regardless of when the patent was applied for, but they had to prove that Richard interfered on purpose, so to speak. Chuck, however, felt like things were a bit complicated for them due to the fact that Richard's son worked for them and it would be kind of a delicate situation. As soon as he brought up Richard's son, John, Elizabeth began suggesting that since the firm had worked with Theranos patents in the past, that it was possible that Richard's son had got a hold of some of her company's confidential files and gave that information to his father. Chuck didn't think this was likely because doing something like that would cost an attorney his or her career. In addition to that, Theranos had taken all their files with them to California when they hired a local firm rather than having to deal with Chuck's firm all the way in Washington, D.C. He remembered how apologetic Elizabeth's dad was about her going with a different firm. So they didn't have anything in their offices anymore involving Theranos that anyone could access since that move was made two years earlier. After Elizabeth left, they all talked it over and decided it was not a good look for their law firm to sue the father of one of their own attorneys, so they called her up a couple of weeks later and told her that they were not going to take the case. After that, Chuck did not think that he'd be hearing about Elizabeth, Richard, or that patent anymore. And it would be about another three years before Elizabeth would start doing something about it. Okay, so in Carrie Rue's book, he actually didn't conclude this story until several more chapters, and I believe it's six more chapters before the reader of his book is able to resolve this drama between Elizabeth and Richard Fwiz. And it's probably has to do with the chronological order of the way things happen, 
or maybe he was leaving you in suspense. I don't know. But I wanted to know what the heck happened. So out of curiosity, I I did look up the case online and I did skip ahead in the book. And it took close to six whole years for this thing to be completely resolved. And I didn't want to go through the history of Theranos without finishing up this story so that we can move on and I don't have to refresh your memories about it because of the chronology of the story. So I'm going to wind it up, but I'm also not going to give away too much of what happened in between. So there is a time lapse here. So it was late in the morning of October 29, 2011 was a Saturday, and the Fuises were by that time residing in Beverly Hills, California, to be closer to one of their kids who had moved to Los Angeles. Someone had come to their front door, and when Richard answered it, the person said he was there to serve Fuise Technologies. Richard was being sued. He informed the process server that he was refusing to take the documents because it had been more than 10 years since he sold that company off. The process server got on the phone to explain what he was being told, only to be yelled at to just serve them. But Richard continued to refuse to accept the documents. So the process server tossed the papers onto the ground in front of Richard and walked away. Richard knew what was going on. He had been waiting for the day that he would be hearing from Elizabeth Holmes and the company that she had the audacity to launch without consulting him first. He took a picture of the papers that were strewn about his front porch, I suppose, to memorialize the fact that he didn't technically accept being served. But then he decided that he would prefer that these documents to not be carried and blown around Rodeo Drive for all to see. So he picked them up and he went inside. And the fact was, whoever drew these papers up for Elizabeth did get the name of the Fuiz's company wrong. It wasn't Fuiz Technologies. It was Fuiz Pharma. He knew that it would infuriate Elizabeth if he refused to be served because the attorney representing Theranos, David Boies, made such a pedestrian mistake in naming the wrong defendant here. Anyway, in the lawsuit, Richard was being accused of conspiring with his older sons, Joe and John, to illegally obtain documents from the law firm that John worked at from where Theranos had hired them to take care of the early patents for the company and that Richard used that confidential information to apply for a competing patent. His son, John, was being accused of exactly what Elizabeth had suggested he had done some years earlier. But that attorney that she suggested it to, Chuck Work, who was her dad's friend, was certain that nobody was willing to put their burgeoning law career in jeopardy over some petty stuff like this. The allegations that John Fuiz stole confidential Theranos patent documents were false, so Richard didn't think that they had anything to worry about when they first were served with the lawsuit papers. The only time Richard had spoken to his son about Theranos was in an email five years earlier that Richard had sent to John asking if he knew who at his firm had taken care of Theranos' patent work. And this email was sent at least a couple of months after Richard had submitted his patent application. John replied to his dad that he had no idea. The law firm was large. There was really no way of him knowing. And then the subject was dropped and John had no memory of the email exchange with his dad, perhaps a very vague memory of it. And as far as he knew, 
The first time he had ever heard of Theranos was five years later when Richard called him up and told him they were being sued. So right off the bat, I'm inclined to believe that John Fleas had no clue what Theranos was because if he had stolen company patent information from his law firm, I'm sure that he would have remembered. I believe he only heard the name in passing in one email and forgot about it completely until his dad was like, uh, son, we're being sued. In addition to that, when it came to John's relationship with the Holmes family, he really had no bones to pick with any of them. In fact, when John had applied for law school, Elizabeth's father had written him a glowing letter of recommendation that helped him to be accepted. And John's wife, through his mom, Lorraine, had also become friends with Elizabeth's mom. It was abundantly clear that the only person who had a problem with the Holmes family was Richard. And the fact that he really didn't have a very close relationship with his son John to begin with only further lessened the possibility that he had done what he was being accused of doing for his dad. Furthermore, John long believed that his dad was a megalomaniac. And I think this is the first time that I have ever used that word to describe anyone in any of our episodes. A pathological egomaniac somebody who obsesses over their own power. And I think it was important to go through the timeline of the lengths that Richard went to in order to destroy the man that he feuded with all those years earlier from Baxter International and the CEO Vernon Laux in order to demonstrate the way that Richard Fleece operated. Getting one up on someone was something that this guy lived for. And as the years went on, John Fleas distanced himself from his father and even went so far to drop his own father as a client from his own law firm. So the idea that John would ruin his career for his dad, he was mostly estranged from to begin with, is a pretty far-fetched accusation. So by now we know that Elizabeth does not take kindly to any sort of action that even remotely appears to be a dig at her or at Theranos. She is fiercely protective of everything, so this whole thing with Richard Fleas infuriated her. His patent essentially threw up a major roadblock to getting the Edison into patients' homes. Remember, his patent was to be the manner in which the at-home blood diagnostic testing system would be wirelessly transmitted to physicians and this is a critical component of the device. And it doesn't really seem as though back in 2006, when this all happened, when he applied for the patent, that Elizabeth had actually thought that far ahead. But when the time came, she was going to have to license it. But Richard had it, and he came up with an idea, and he patented it. When his patent was issued to him, Richard had a press release to announce it, and he sent a copy of that to Theranos. Elizabeth eventually decided that rather than wheeling and dealing with a guy like Richard Fuiz, she would find the best attorney out there to destroy him. And I mentioned him a little while ago, David Boyce. David Boyce was born in Sycamore, Illinois in 1941. He was one of five children to parents who were both teachers. He was dyslexic and unable to read until after the age of eight. So before that, his mother would read to him and he would memorize all the stories because he couldn't read them. Later on, many would attribute his success in the courtroom 
to his having a photographic memory. David Boyce's most notable clients include Al Gore versus George Bush. He was representing Gore when they contested the 2000 election. File sharing company Napster. Filmmaker Michael Moore. The wife of former Dodgers owner Frank McCourt when they were divorcing. He represented the NFL in Tom Brady versus NFL. He represented the NBA during the 2011 lockout. He represented Oracle in Oracle versus Google. He represented tobacco company Philip Morris in the $2.5 million that was awarded in the death of a smoker. He represented Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones versus the NFL commissioner Roger Goodell regarding the suspension of Ezekiel Elliott in 2017. And currently, he is representing several Jeffrey Epstein accusers, including Virginia Cufre. So yeah, Elizabeth Holmes is not messing around, and neither was David Boyes. His fees? $1,000 per hour. But for Theranos, in lieu of attorney fees, he accepted 30,000 shares of stock worth $4.5 million, and he became a member of the board of directors. David Boyes is known for being very combative in the courtroom. Shortly after Elizabeth hired his firm, Richard Fries realized that he was being surveilled. There was a car constantly parked across the street from their home with a person just sitting there in the driver's seat. And it wasn't like they were trying to hide or make themselves inconspicuous, almost like they were purposely letting it be known that they were there and that the Fuises were being watched. And it was really distressful for them, especially for Lorraine, thinking that Elizabeth was going to take them for everything that they had and leave them penniless and homeless. Elizabeth, along with her then-boyfriend, Sonny Belwani, together they had this overwhelming fear that basically drove everything that the two of them did and every decision that they made. And it was that their two biggest competitors in the field of diagnostic technologies, Quest Diagnostics and Laboratory Corporation of America, that they were out to cripple Theranos, and Elizabeth wanted to find out if Richard Fries was in cahoots with either of those two companies. What Elizabeth did not know is that neither Quest nor LabCorp had any idea who or what Theranos was, nor did Richard have any affiliation with them either. It was a way for Elizabeth and Sonny to just kind of build up all this drama, this competition with Quest and LabCorp. And I remember watching in one of the documentaries when they were celebrating some sort of victory or having some kind of team building event or whatever, and they all together, or Sonny led them together in a chant of yelling like, fuck you, to Quest and LabCorp because they felt that they were such a big threat that they were trying to take Theranos down. But like I said, I don't think Quest or LabCorp or anyone affiliated with them was even worried about Theranos in the least. Obviously, Theranos was not only a threat to them, Theranos was using their testing equipment to run their blood diagnostics. We'll come to find out later on. So yeah, there's that too, and we'll talk about that as we go along here. A couple of months after Richard was served with the lawsuit documents, his son John had a number of documents sent to Elizabeth's attorney, 
that showed an investigation into John proved that he never had access to Theranos' files at the law firm that he worked at. But David Boyce was unimpressed with the supposed evidence. It was weak at best to him. And then David Boyce found out that John was asked to leave the law firm in 2009 after a huge disagreement with some of the other partners in a case unrelated to Theranos. The law firm had some documents in a case that they were going to use as evidence, but they knew that those documents were forged, and John began insisting that they not use them in court. It caused a huge problem for him at the firm, but there was also another issue about a complaint that they had received from a client about John. Even though John didn't know who the complaint was from, he was certain that it originated from Elizabeth. Eventually, the case against John Fuiz was dismissed because of statute of limitation issues. The case against the law firm as a whole was also dismissed on the grounds that the alleged legal malpractice was only conjecture on the part of Theranos. There was no proof that anyone accessed any confidential files. However, many of the allegations against Richard and his other son, Joe, would stand. Even though John was the attorney who had access to the Therano patent documents, but was no longer involved in the lawsuit, David Boyes was going to continue to insist that they were all in on it together. As this case dragged on, it caused a lot of problems for John Fuiz and his reputation as an attorney as he tried to move on from the law firm. After he resigned, he started his own practice, and the lawsuit caused him to lose a number of important clients. At the same time, he was dealing with his wife having a pregnancy complication called Vasa Previa, where the umbilical vessels running through the amniotic membranes are unprotected and at risk of rupturing. So the stress levels were running high, and it turned into a great deal of anger on John's part towards Theranos and Elizabeth. He just didn't have time for this crap. Now, there was a very important name that comes up during this litigation against Richard Fuiz. And if you listen to the podcast or watch the documentaries on Theranos, then you may be familiar with this person. His name is Ian Gibbons. And I really want you to remember him because we will be talking about him much more as we go along here. But in terms of Richard Fuiz and his patent, he knew Elizabeth being that she is a college dropout with no formal training or education in anything. He knew that there were others doing the work on the things that were patented with her name on them. And one name that appeared repeatedly as Elizabeth's co-inventor was Ian Gibbons. And because Richard knew Ian was a legitimate biochemist with a PhD and had dozens of his own patents, he knew that Ian would be a credible witness if he could call him to testify that his patent was unique from anything that Theranos had developed. Richard wanted Ian on his witness list, but David Boyes ignored all of their attempts to have Ian deposed for more than a month. It turned out that Ian Gibbons would not live to testify at the trial of Theranos versus Richard and John Fuiz. I'll get into all that later on. What we do know is Richard's attorney had really wanted to call him to testify. So because Ian was no longer available, they tried to have his widow subpoenaed, but the judge denied that. Ian's widow 
Michelle Gibbons let it be known that Elizabeth was aggressively trying to dissuade her husband from testifying. And we all know how intimidating Elizabeth can be. Ian began to feel Elizabeth was not really on the level with everything that she was saying or doing. But in the end, neither of the Gibbons would testify to anything at trial. When Richard testified at the lawsuit trial, he was called out on a couple of blatant lies that were kind of embarrassing, made worse by the fact that he refused to back down even though he was proven to be lying. For example, he said that he was still a practicing doctor. But in her deposition, his own wife said that he was not practicing medicine anymore. Richard said that his patent was completely unrelated to Theranos and any of their technology. But like I mentioned earlier, he had actually named Theranos in his initial patent application. Richard, by this time, was going on 75 years old, and he just wasn't as sharp as he had once been. And this testimony of his was abysmal. His son and co-defendant Joe just sat there and looked on, filled with cringe. He really felt like they were on pace to lose the case, especially after all that this was costing them as well in terms of legal fees. If they lost, not only would they be out nearly $2 million that they spent on their defense, there's a possibility that they were going to have to pay Theranos' legal expenses too. And I already told you, David Boyce's bill was $4.5 million. Feeling like they were up against the ropes, the Fuises decided to go ahead and settle the case. Richard agreed to retract his patent, and Theranos would retract their lawsuit, and they would call it square from there. Nobody gets awarded any money. So in essence, for one of the first times in his life, Richard Fuiz was forced to back down. Elizabeth Holmes was victorious. The agreement was written and signed right there as soon as they settled, and when the documents were ready and finished and done, Richard Fries was crushed. Before he left the courtroom, the man broke down into tears. Okay, we are going to end part two here. When we get back, we are going to rejoin the timeline from where we left off before we got into the lawsuit that we just finished discussing. Please join the Facebook discussion group with your feedback and comments. You can also follow the page on Instagram and Twitter. As you can hear, I've been kind of sick. It's been uh, a little more than a week now. I caught this cold in California. My daughter had actually been exposed to COVID. We got tested. Both of us came up negative. That was a week ago. But then yesterday, she tested positive. So she's now at home trying to isolate. I'm trying to deal with getting my mom situated because she can't go anywhere near my mom and help her. You know, she's there helping her with all of her health problems. So it's a little bit stressful right now. I might have to be going back to California again sooner than later because my mom's not doing well. My daughter has COVID, but I'm a little bit stuck here right now. My voice, I know, sounds like crap, and I'm so sorry, but I just wanted to get this out to you guys. I'm 
got the Patreon episode out. That one also, my voice sounds like junk as well. And I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. I'm just kind of stressed out right now. But anyway, um, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. I want to thank you as always for listening. And oh, stay tuned for the um, the promo from the Reverie True Crime Podcast for me. Please listen to that after this. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams. I'm Paige, the host of Reverie True Crime. I tell stories of helpless victims, vicious killers, predators watching their prey before they strike, survivors, petty crimes, people we think we know who do the unthinkable, and the dangers that lurk not only in the dead of night, but in plain sight and the light of day. Every once in a while, I'll also tell stories of the frightening paranormal, elusive cryptids, haunted locations, and conspiracies that may be silly or thought-provoking. You can listen to Reverie True Crime wherever you're listening to this podcast. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Reverie Crime Pod. Facebook, Instagram, and even Tumblr at Reverie True Crime. Remember, stay safe, be aware of your surroundings at all times, and take care.